Once again, welcome to Harvest. Uh, so glad you're here worshiping with us today. Uh, Merry Christmas as we cr- uh, launch into Christmas Sunday today. And um, my name is Pastor Micah. So glad to be uh, worshiping with you. We're going to dive into God's Word together now. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. If you need a Bible, there's a hardback black one somewhere there on the floor around you. Feel free to grab one of those. We'd love you to do that as well. Um, so today, um, we're going to go to John chapter 1. So if you want to go ahead and turn to John 1. Um, a little bit different text maybe for Christmas message than maybe you're used to. Uh, but I think you're going to see one that's very applicable um, for what Jesus wants to say to us today about his, his birth. And uh, if you're a guest with us today, as Chris said earlier, man, I just want to say again, thank you so much for being here. We're honored to have you worship with us today. And if we can serve you in any way, please let us know. We would, we would love to do that. So um, one Christmas, um, Adam wanted a bicycle like really bad. You know, you had that one, like, gift as a kid that you just, like, you had to get that gift. Like, he wanted a bicycle. But he knew his track record from the year wasn't so great. And so he might need a little bit of help getting the points up to get the bicycle. And so he decided he was going to enlist some help from Jesus. And so Adam went to his desk in his room, and he started to write a letter to Jesus. And he said, Dear Jesus, I've been a good boy all year. And then he paused. And that's... That's not going to work. So he crumples that up and he throws it away. He gets the second piece of paper. He starts writing it. Dear Jesus, I've been a good boy for six months. Uh, that's not going to work either. So he crumples that up and he throws it away. He says he starts writing it. I've been a good boy for, for two months. No, 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 two weeks. I've been a good boy for two weeks, he says. He's like, no. And he kind of buries his head in his hands. And he's like, Jesus is not going to help me if I'm lying. Like, this is not going well. And so he, he sits there for a while and he's trying to figure out, like, what, what can I do to make this work? And finally it dawns on him. He jumps up from his desk, and he runs into the living room, and he finds the family's nativity scene up on the mantle, and he grabs the statue of Mary. He runs back to his room. He wraps Mary up in a cloth. He puts her in the bottom drawer of his dresser, and he comes back to his desk, and he says, Dear Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again. <clears throat> we all have a little bit of Adam in us, don't we? Right? We have this thing inside of us that makes us feel that we have to do something get it right, to earn our way back, to make it, to be good enough to, to have God's faith fall upon us. We don't really believe that he would be loving enough to just give it to us as a gift. Like we have to do something to get there. And the bad news is there's nothing we can do. There's not enough. Even at Christmas time, even when we're being extra generous and we're saying, you know, smiling at people at the grocery store instead of storming out. Like, you no, know, when you're in a good Christmas, we like, that's still not enough. But here's the really good news of Christmas. Here's the, the life-changing, blow-your-mind news of Christmas. The Christmas story is not about us reaching up to God at all. The Christmas story is completely about God reaching down to us, coming to us in the form of a baby, because he knew we could never get up to where he's at. That's what we mean when we use the word Advent. We've been using that word a lot this season here around Harvest. Advent is just the idea of of God arriving, God coming down and appearing on earth with man. And that's what we're going to see in our text today, is that Jesus' Advent was God's rescue mission for us. Jesus' advent was God's rescue mission for us. 
So John chapter 1, look at verse 14. I'm going to mainly just stay in this one verse today. It says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Point number one is this. Jesus came to us. Jesus came to us. The verse starts and it says, the word became flesh. So the word here is a title, right? It's a, it's a title for something or someone. And, and to understand what the word means, we kind of have to do a little homework here. And so go back up to verse 1 of chapter 1. So John chapter 1, verse 1, and look how he actually starts this whole chapter. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And so what we start to figure out here is that the word is God's self-revelation to us, his creation. He's, this is how he's going to show us who he is. Let me give you some, some background into some of this here so it kind of maybe makes a little bit more sense. When, when John starts writing his book, and he starts with those words, in the beginning, if you were like a good, you know, went to school, did your homework, went to synagogue kind of Jew, immediately when you heard the words, in the beginning, you would think, Genesis 1 first book of all the scripture, it starts off in the beginning, right? God created the heavens and the earth, da, 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 da. John here is pointing us back. He says, in the beginning, like way back in the beginning when, when all things were created, before any of this was here, in the beginning when God created all things, he says, in the beginning was the word. Meaning that the word, whatever the word is, already existed prior to everything else that was created. Now, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but what exists before anything else exists? There can only be one thing that exists before everything else. That's God. That's what makes him God, is that he preexisted everything else, and everything else comes from who he is. So here, just by in this very simple statement, we see that the word, John is using that as a title for God. And we see that echo throughout the Old Testament that oftentimes when God wants to do something or achieve something or show up, he uses this idea of the word or his word. Let me give you some examples of how his word shows us the powerful activity of God, both in creation and deliverance. So Psalm 33, 6 says it like this. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. So by simply speaking the words, by breathing them out, God created everything that we know that exists today. That's the power of God. That's how God revealed himself was through his word and creation. And then also through the deliverance of his people. Example of that, Psalm 107, 20. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. He didn't even have to show up on the scene. He just said the words and the words went and did the work. Right? Because God's word is so powerful, it has his full deity in it, and it becomes his own self-expression, his own self-revelation of who he is. And this personification of the word in the Old Testament now becomes the actual manifestation of the word in the New Testament in the person of Jesus Christ. Let me show you. Look at verse 1. It keeps going. So, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. That little word with there is super important. It's 
in the Greek word, it simply means that it was a separate being. That there was more than one being present and they were with one another, like in relationship, hanging out, doing life together, community, having coffee. I don't know what they're doing, but they, they, two beings were there together. And then it says the word was, the word was with God, and the word, here's the clincher, was God. Was God meaning 100% fully divine. Not lacking in any way, in any characteristic, in any minutia, what makes up God, the word had all of it. So this begins to lay the foundation for what we now call today the Trinity. It's our theological term that means that there is one God that exists in three persons, three beings. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the second member of that Trinity, God the Son, is what is here called the Word by John. That we now today call him Jesus Christ. That was the title he received once he stepped foot on the earth. But this Jesus Christ, this word, this second member of the Trinity has always existed before creation and he was with God and he was God. So now we have a whole, a whole big picture here of who's coming because it says in verse 14, go back to our main verse now, John 1, 14, and the word became flesh. God became you've been in church for a long time, I think we've heard that so much that we're just like, oh yeah, I knew that. And we miss the miracle and the power and the glory and just the mind-blowing truth that God became a human. In fancy theological speak, we call that the Incarnation. That where the creator came down and became part of his creation. And Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 2 like this. He says in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at that name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. What Paul is telling us here is that when, when God came down in the form of man, when Jesus came and became a human, that this was the supreme revelation of God throughout all time and eternity. God has revealed himself in lots of different ways to different people at different times. But none more clearer, none more powerfully, none more tangibly than when Jesus Christ came and walked the earth as a man. What's even more impressive about this is that this is God himself coming. Every time before he didn't come, he sent a messenger, he sent an angel, he sent a priest, he sent a prophet. Somebody always came and spoke for him, but this is the first time that we see 100% God stepping down as man on the earth. 
God came. And it says that he dwelt among us. Again, that word dwelt there, it's why I'm only doing one verse today. Like every word in this verse is like super important. The word dwelt there literally means tented, tabernacled. And not like camping tent, like we're not going out, you know, to the forest here. But like it's referring back to the Old Testament, what the Jews called the tent of witness or later on the tabernacle. It was the structure that they built and they carried with them throughout the desert when they were seeking the promised land. And it is the place, the only place. The only place where God's presence would come down and dwell in that building and meet with Moses face to face. And he would speak to him and he would tell him, here's what I want you to do and here's how to lead my people and here's what they need to be doing to worship me. And, and he would come down and his presence would meet with them. And so when it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, he's literally saying God's presence is coming down to be with us in the same way that it came down and met with Moses face to face. But I think it's a little bit different because there's two kind of major ways that I see difference in this text from what Moses experienced in the tabernacle. First of all, it says he dwelt with us, plural, among us. You see, before in the Old Testament, when God would come down and his presence would come down, he would meet with like one person. Or like he would talk with Moses, and then Moses would go and talk with everybody else. Now he's coming to be with all of his people. We no longer have to go through one guy to tell us how to talk to God or how to follow the instructions or how to. Now we all get to have a relationship with the presence, with the power, with the person of God through his tabernacling among us in Jesus Christ. And the second thing is it's more permanent. It says he's coming to dwell with us. That literally, that literally means like set up a residence. Like he's going to come and live with us. And Jesus did that for a time. And then even when Jesus ascended back into heaven, he said, don't worry, I'm gonna send you the Holy Spirit and he won't just dwell with you. He will dwell in you. And now you have God's presence, if you're a follower of Christ, you have God's presence living in you all the time. Again, just a remarkable thing that we take for granted so often. John 14, Jesus says it like this. He says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. The Holy Spirit is actually the... the the, the ultimate fulfillment of Christ coming and dwelling among us. Now it's Christ in us. And that's true for every believer. This whole idea of, of God, King, Lord, stepping down off his throne to come and be among the people, I think sometimes it kind of gets lost on us as Americans because we don't really do the king thing, right? Like we have presidents and we have politicians and we have actors and athletes and people that we think are famous and really cool. And, but, but even when we look at those people, as Americans, we still kind of have this chip on our shoulder. We're like, yeah, but you're just like me, right? Like this is beyond, that's what we think, right? Like, like you're just like me, you're just like an average guy that just happens to have an extra skill or talent in this area. And don't, don't get me, it's, it's cool to meet them and all, and like get their autographs and stuff, but, but we still don't see them as some special plane of person. 
countries where they have like royalty, like when they meet somebody from the royal family, I mean, it's like, it's awe-inspiring. It's, it's shocking. It's, it's, so maybe this will help. Do you might recognize this lady? Let's put that picture up. You may remember her from a couple decades ago? Who, who is that? All right. So I think arguably, probably the most famous and what most beloved royal of the last 30 years, if not all time, by Americans. Okay? You talk to, the, you talk to them over there, they probably would completely disagree. But for us, like, this was the one that everybody loved. You, you know why Americans loved Princess Diana? It's because she didn't just stay in the palace. She didn't just hide behind all the pomp and circumstance. She came out and among the people. You saw her playing at the park with her kids. You saw her serving at charities. You saw her walking down the streets and talking with people. You saw her doing interviews and talking about like real life stuff that we all go through. Like she got down off her throne and came down to be on our level, to be with us. That's what God did when Jesus came. He, he loved people more than he loved his position. And so he stepped down off his throne and he came down to be with us on our level. In Jesus, God came down from his throne to be with us. We need to just let that sink in for a moment this morning. The world that had turned their back on him, that had rejected him and rebelled against him and said, we, we, we got this, we don't need you, we can go our own way, we'll, we know better than you do, God. He still chose to step down and come to meet us. So that's the first thing. Jesus comes to us. Look at the second thing. Look at verse 14 again. So the word, came, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. Here's the second thing you need to see today. Jesus came unlike us. Point number two, Jesus came unlike us. John says we have seen his glory. That word glory is a, is a major theme throughout the Bible. Super important word, okay? In the Greek, it's doxa. In the Hebrew, it's kabod or kabod. It's, it's this idea that, that there's a visible manifestation of who God is. It's God revealing himself, his character, his, his, his abilities, his, his, his essence to us in some visible way, in some way that we can comprehend as mere mortals, and God reveals his glories multiple ways throughout his, um, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, throughout his word, throughout salvation history. But most of all, we see it in Jesus. Now, let's just be clear, because there's lots, you know, there's movies and all kinds of portrayals of this kind of stuff. Jesus did not walk around with like this glowing aura around him, like there was a spotlight on him all the time. Right? Like it, you didn't see it like that. He wasn't in a white robe all the time. That it was never dirty, even though there's dust and dirt everywhere. Like he didn't have the halo or the big Fabio hair. Like it wasn't like he he didn't. You didn't see the glory of God in his outward appearance. You saw the glory of God 
his life and who he was in the character and in, and in the life that he lived in front of all creation as they looked on. That was the visible manifestation of God. That was the manifestation of his glory and his greatness. Let me give you some examples of that. First of all, we see his glory at his advent, right? At his birth. More familiar type of Christmas story in Luke chapter two, the shepherds are in the field and the angels come down, right? And it says this, and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping their watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I will bring you good, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, and you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so at the very announcement of the birth of Jesus, we already see the glory of God coming down and shining down on his life. Right? Nobody else in all of history gets an announcement from an angel choir. God is making sure that we see this is my son and he is the reflection of my glory. We also see it with the wise men and the star that they followed in Matthew chapter two. Verse one says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. I'm sorry, verse 9. <coughs> After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him, and opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So these guys come from miles and miles and miles away because they see this star forecasting, if you will, the glory of God coming down in some king that they had been studying in their writings for hundreds of years. It's finally here. He's coming today. We got to go find him. And they follow the glory of this star. And when they get there, they kneel down as, as kings in their own rights and they worship the glory of God manifested in a baby. We also see it beyond his birth in his ministry. You know, as Jesus grew up and he started to do public ministry, he did multiple and multiple signs and wonders and miracles, all recorded in the Gospels. His first one is actually in John chapter 2, the chapter right after the one we're looking at now. He makes water into wine at this wedding because his mama asked him to. And then it says this after the miracle. This was the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him every time Jesus did a miracle every time he did a sign or a wonder it was for the purpose of manifesting the glory of God to all those who were on looking 
at his life and recorded for us generations after. We also see it through his wisdom and through his teachings. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you've never read through those, man, that's, that's like step number one to figuring out who is God and who is Jesus and what's this all about. You have to know what he taught. You have to know what he said. And when you read the teachings of Jesus, you see the glory of God just flowing out of him in the wisdom and in, and in the clarity with which he spoke about spiritual things that nobody else before or since has ever had. That was the glory of God. But we see it really peak. We see the pinnacle of God's glory, ultimately at Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and then ascension into heaven. In John chapter 12, he describes it like this. This is Jesus talking. He says, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But in, if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus here, he's predicting. He's saying, listen, in a couple days, this is going to happen. I'm going to the cross. It's going to be over. I'm going in the grave. Like, this is, this is happening. And it's all because I'm here to glorify the Father. This is going to be the high mark. This is going to be the pinnacle of the glory of God shining through the person of Jesus when he goes and sacrificially gives his life for us. So John says, we see the glory of God in this, in this person, the word. And then he says this in verse 14, look again. It says, it's glory as of the only son. Now, only son there is, can be a little misleading. Um, a better way to maybe phrase that would be like the beloved son or the, the foremost son, right? The, the son who is most like his father, the one who's first in likeness to God. And the reason John gives him that description is he's trying to help us see that this, this Jesus, this word that was displaying the glory of God, he was human, he was like us, but he was not like us. In fact, he was, he was nothing like us because as humans, our natural bent is to go and pursue our own glory. Look at me, look at how awesome I am. I deserve this, I want that. It's all about me, like that's who we are, right? The world revolves around us until Jesus changes our hearts. But Jesus wasn't like that. He was never about his own glory. He was only ever focused on the glory of God the Father. John eight fifty says, Yet I do not seek my own glory. This is Jesus talking. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. That's God the Father. So Jesus came in the glory of God, but not for himself, but to show us who God really is, to show us God's glory. He came as the, the forerunner, as the example of, here's what it looks like to know God and to follow God and to be a, a mirror of his light in the world. And John even says it there in 14. He says, glory is of the only son from the father. Only God the father could give his glory to someone. Agreed? Like if, it, if, he, if it's his, if he owns it, like he gets to decide who gets it and who doesn't get it. 
He only ever gave it in its fullness to one guy. That was Jesus. Other people throughout history have gotten glimpses of the glory. Like Moses got a glimpse of the glory when he got on Mount Sinai with the tablets and then in the thing. Isaiah got it when he dreamed he was in the throne room and saw the, the train of the robe. Like he got a glimpse of the glory. But he didn't get all of it. Like, at one point, Moses is like, show me your glory. He's like, I can't. It'll melt your face off, right? Like, you can't get all of it. I can give you a little bit. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter and John in the New Testament, they go up with Jesus, and they get to see a glimpse of the glory. We just studied Stephen a couple weeks ago, his stoning in Acts. He got to see a glimpse of the glory. We get to see glimpses of the glory of God as we study his word, as he changes our hearts, as we interact with his family. We get to see glimpses of the glory of God, but we don't get all of it. Only one guy ever got all of the glory in human form, and that was Jesus Christ. Because he was the visible manifestation of who God is. John says, we have seen him. We who? I wasn't there. Were you there? Like, who, who's we? Have we, who has seen him, John? Well, John has. And, and there were some other witnesses that were still alive at the time that John wrote this, and they would give testimony to say, yes, we saw him. We, 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 this, was, this was true. They were firsthand witnesses of the glory of God shining through the person of Jesus and they saw clearly through him exactly who God was. And again, they <laughs> became very clear. He was not like them. And as we look at the glory of God reflected in Jesus Christ through his scriptures, it should be very clear to us that he is not like us. God is glorious, powerful, and perfect, and righteous, and holy, and all these things, and none of that is like us. And that's actually a good thing. You see, if we had a God that looked like us, that acted like us, that talked like us, that thought like us, that would be a really bad God. Right? Can we just can we agree on that? Like, like I would make a really bad God. So the fact that Jesus shows us that God is not like us should be a breath of fresh air to anyone who's looking for hope beyond themselves. He was like us, but he was not like us. told you before, Christmas is <coughs> by far one of my favorite times of the year. And one of the reasons it's my favorite times of the year is because all of the fantastic Christmas cookies and candy that you get to consume at the Christmas holiday. But I have found as I've gotten older that you, you have to be, you have to get wiser about how you spend the allotment of Christmas candy in your food consumption right? Because you can't eat as much as you used to eat. It makes you sick and, and makes other things happen to your body and it's just not good. So like you have to be a little more picky on which, where you're going to spin that. And, and so some, some candies just don't make the cut. You know what I'm saying? Like they're just not good enough and it's not worth wasting it on that. 
there was there was one candy in particular I remember growing up that just always felt like it was just this kind of you know plain Jane, not worth it, just this <coughs> run of the mill candy, like don't waste your time. That was the uh, the classic milk chocolate Hershey's Kiss. Right? It's just just a little piece of like chocolate. It's got the little teardrop. Like I, what? Like why am I? Why would I eat that? That's not even worth worth the time or the effort. But I'll tell you what. Hershey's is smart. They have reinvented the Hershey's Kiss. Have you noticed this the last couple of years? Like, have you seen all the different varieties of Hershey's Kiss that are now available? So, especially around Christmas, you got the, the cherry cordial ones, you got the, the hot cocoa, the, the mint truffle, but, but, by far, the best Hershey's Kiss on the market today is the candy cane mint Hershey's Kiss. Can I, can I get a holler from anybody? Please, come on, come on. I, like, this candy is, is off the charts. This is by far the best Hershey's Kiss out there. If you're looking for a late Christmas present for your pastor, look no further, okay? Like, just, this is where it's at. But picture this for a second, okay? You're at a Christmas party, and there's, there's a bowl of, of Hershey's Kisses on the table, and the unsuspecting snacker walks up, and they see the Hershey's Kiss there in the silver packaging and the little silver stuff and it's got the little pic, the candy cane pictures on it but they're like oh that's probably just you know some decoration for Christmas it's probably just the normal Hershey's Kiss and so they're, they're going to pass it up they're like well I'll try one and they pick one up and they open it up and then they put the the glorious goodness in their mouth that is the peppermint candy cane kiss and they immediately realize that I thought this kiss was like all the other kisses but it is not like the other kisses. Are you with me? It is far superior and far more glorious than any other kiss I've ever had before. This, this, that's what John's trying to tell us about Jesus here. He looked like us. But when you really got to know him, when you really got to taste the goodness and the glory and, and the, the superior manifestation of who he was he was not like us he was completely unlike us in every way and that's what made him God of the flesh in Jesus God came down like us to show us he's completely unlike us and that's a really really good thing. Let's finish out this verse. It says, we have seen his glory, glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Point number three, Jesus came for us. He came down to us. He came unlike us. And most of all, he came for us. It says here that that he was full of grace and truth. I want to unpack those two words for just a second here because they're both so important to understand who Jesus really is. A lot of times in our world, you'll get a picture of Jesus that only shows half of who he was. You'll get the picture of loving Jesus who loves everybody no matter what you do. He's kind of like, you know, Santa Claus or Easter Bunny. And he just, he loves everybody. He'll give whatever you, whatever you need, he'll take care of you. And Or you get Jesus over here that's like, angry, mad Jesus, and if you do anything wrong, he's going to, you know, strike you down with a lightning bolt, right? Like, those are the two pictures of Jesus you get most of the time 
the Bible gives us a more complete picture. A picture of one who was full of grace and truth. Jesus, first, he was full of truth because his life was the perfect truth of who God is and who we are. See, Jesus was the only person to ever come and live a perfect and sinless life. We can't even fathom what that looks like. But as he came and he walked this earth and he was sinless and perfect and righteous and holy, he was showing us the truth about who God is. That God is all those things. 100% without flaw, perfect, righteous, holy. That's God. And we got to see the truth of that in Jesus Christ. He also, in turn, showed us the truth of who we are. Because as we looked at him and who God is, we saw how far we are from that. That we are not good, and we are not perfect or holy or righteous, not even close, and we don't even know how to get there. And Jesus' life is that picture of that contrast of the holiness of God that we have to have, we have to get there somehow if we're going to have any chance at life after death. And also showing us that we can't get there on our own. The truth is, I can never be good enough. I can never do enough. I can never give enough. I can never earn my way back into perfection because I've already missed the mark. That's the truth of who Jesus was. But thankfully, he wasn't just full of truth. He was also full of grace. The forgiveness of God for that sin of us missing who he is. Jesus came, he lived that perfect sinless life, and then he went to the cross and he gave his life as a sacrificial death in our place. He let God's wrath and punishment for our sin fall upon himself. And he stood in our place as a substitute. And he took our sin and he took our guilt. And he died and he went to the grave and three days later he rose back to life to show that he was God, to prove that everything about his life that he, we thought was true was indeed true. And then he offers us grace, forgiveness. He says, if you'll turn away from your sin and you'll believe in me, if you'll put your faith and your hope in me, I'll forgive that, I'll cleanse you, and I will make you righteous and holy and perfect, just like God that you can be with him again. Jesus' grace is what removes the separation between us and God so that we can have a relationship with our Heavenly Father. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus' grace covers our sin because he was full of grace and truth. But what I never noticed before until this week when I was studying this, it wasn't just that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Look closer at verse 14. See, Paul kind of, or I'm sorry, John kind of does this little intertwined thing. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, comma, and we have seen his glory, comma, and then you got a parenthetical thought here, glory is of the only son from the father, comma, full of grace and truth. What's full of grace and truth? The glory. It's the glory that is manifest in the person of Jesus that is full of grace and truth. 
It is actually his grace and his truth intermingled in the person of Jesus Christ that is the highest manifestation of God's glory to us in who Jesus is. See, when it says that he was full of grace and truth, it doesn't mean he was like half grace and half truth, like 50-50. It literally means he was 100% full of grace and 100% full of truth at the exact same time. And we can't understand how that works because in our minds we're like, well, 100 and 100, that's 200, and there's not 200, there's one, like, we can't do that. We could not handle that much glory in our bodies. We would explode. But Jesus could, because he was God in the flesh. 100% grace and truth, the full glory of God manifest in the person walking around, giving his life for us so that we could be brought back to the Father. Only Jesus could hold those two together perfectly, grace and truth. I try daily to do that, and it does not go well. You feeling me? Anybody else in that boat? He did it perfectly. Because he was God in the flesh. He did it most visibly as he hung on the cross in our place for our sins. Truth and grace simultaneously in the person of Jesus Christ. The glory of Christmas, listen, there's lots of things out there that are competing for what's the best part of Christmas. I'm going to tell you right now. The glory of Christmas is the cross. It's not the baby. It's not the angels. It's not the wise men. All that's great. Love that. But the glory of Christmas is the cross of Jesus Christ. There wasn't a day that he spent on this earth that his eyes were not already fixed on going to the cross for me and you. I hope you believe that today. If you don't, now's your opportunity. Turn from sin, put your faith in Jesus, and experience the glory of his grace in your life. Let him change you this Christmas season. It will be the best gift you've ever gotten. There was a famous pastor in Boston named A.J. Gordon. It's a story. One day he was out in front of his church and this young boy comes up and he has this cage and he's got some birds in it. He says, son, where, where, where'd you get those birds? He said, oh, I trapped them out in the field. He said, oh, what, what are you going to do with them? He said, I'll play with them for a little bit, and then we'll probably feed them to my cat back at the house. He's like, I don't, I don't, I don't know, that's great. So he's like, how about, how about I buy the birds from you? <coughs> so he said, well, mister, you, you don't want these birds. They're, they're, they're just old wild birds. They don't, they don't sing or nothing. Like, these are worthless birds. You don't want these birds. I'll give you $2 for the cage and the birds. Okay, mister, but you're making a bad deal. So he gave him the money. The kid whistles off happily with his, with his money. And, and Gordon takes the cage around to the back of the church. And he opens it up. And the birds fly out into the air. The next Sunday, he climbs into his pulpit. And he takes the empty cage with him. And he uses it to illustrate how Christ came and paid the price to free us from the cage of sin. 
Now he gave us an opportunity to be rescued and, and to, to fly away free. He says, you know what, that, son, that, that boy told me those birds weren't, weren't singers. He's like, but I can tell you what, when I released them and, I heard, and they flew away, I heard them singing as loud as they could, rescued, rescued, rescued. That is the song of Advent. Every Christmas carol we sing, rescued. Every gift that we give under the tree, rescued. The angels announcing to the shepherds was the story of rescue. Mary trying to figure out how to do this as a little young teenage girl was the story of rescue. The wise men traveling for miles to find and worship the baby king is a story of rescue. All of it points to the fact that God came down as a baby to be our sacrifice to go to the cross and to rescue us from our sin. In Jesus, God came down to a manger to go to the cross and rescue us. Jesus' advent was God's rescue mission me, for you. God gave the greatest gift ever given at Christmas for us. He sent his son to pay the price and to give you rescue. So this week, as you go to your family, as you go to your parties, as you go to your house, as you go to our Christmas Eve service, like wherever you're going and you're celebrating Christmas, I hope, I pray, I plead with you, receive the greatest gift ever given that God wants to rescue you through the person of Jesus Christ. If you've never done that, do it right. I'm getting ready to pray. You can pray right now. Just pray and ask the Lord, God, please take away my sin. Make me your child. I believe. Rescue me from this life. Give me a new heart. I believe. And you will celebrate Christmas 2019 as a changed person in the family of God. stand together. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We're going to respond to the rescue that God gave for us. <coughs> Dear Heavenly Father, God, we love you. Lord, we love to be here today in your presence, remembering, celebrating Advent, reflecting on the gift of your son. Lord, thank you for sending Jesus to come in the flesh, to stand in our place, to rescue us from sin. Lord, open our eyes today. Lord, help us see, help us believe, 
even if we've already confessed Jesus, Lord, even if we're Christians, Lord, help us see again. Help us believe afresh this Christmas season, Lord, that you are enough and that you have rescued us and that you are our greatest hope and joy and love and peace. Lord, help us to give thanks this Advent season. Lord, thank you for your mission to come and to rescue us. Lord, send us out on that same mission to share your good news with others so that they can be rescued as well. Lord, let us look to you today. Thank you. Thank you for sending heaven down to us. I pray all this in Christ's precious name.